Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. Square Deal. Square buys Australian buy now, pay later business for $29 billion. Tanker tensions. The U.S. and U.K. blame Iran for a deadly attack on an Israeli ship. Restrictions relaxed. U.K. brings in new travel rules as airline bosses call for the government to go further. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday. Let's begin, as always, with a check of the markets. Global stocks are higher across the board on this first trading day of August, driven in part by strong corporate results and a fresh round of merger activity. U.S. features are higher after Wall Street's modest pullback last week. Europe is close to all-time highs, too. European markets getting a boost from strong results at banking giant HSBC. And news of a mega-merger between U.K. aerospace group Megat and Parker Hannafin of the U.S. U.S. fintech firm Square is announcing its biggest ever corporate purchase to a $29 billion deal for Australia's afterpay. We're going to have more on that in just a few minutes. Stocks in Asia finished higher. The Shanghai Composite rallied almost 2 percent. New numbers, however, show Chinese manufacturing activity rising at its slowest pace in well over a year. Chinese authorities said over the weekend they are open to easing tensions with the U.S. over Chinese IPO listings. Beijing also announced new measures to control cryptocurrency trading. Okay, let's get straight to our drivers. An Olympic sprinter from Belarus seeking refuge after her team tried to forcibly send her home. This comes after she criticized her coaches on social media for registering her for the wrong event. Selena Wang is live for us in Tokyo with the latest. Selena, great to see you. How is all this playing out? Well, Allison, I'm actually outside of the Polish embassy here in Tokyo, where sprinter Kristina Timonovskaya had entered earlier. According to Poland's deputy foreign minister, she has, in fact, received a humanitarian visa. He said that Poland will do whatever they can to ensure that she can continue her sporting career. Now, Allison, she was set to compete in the 200-meter heats on Monday at the Olympics, but on Sunday, representatives of the Belarus National Committee came to the Olympic Village, told her to pack up her belongings and go back to Belarus. Now, when she got to the airport, she approached a Japanese police officer and said that she wanted to seek political asylum and that she was refusing to go back. Now, her fear of returning comes after she had spoken out against sporting authorities in Belarus. She had complained on Instagram that she was entered in the 4 by 400 meter relay without her consent. Now, she later said to a Belarus news website the following. She said, quote, I'm afraid that I might be jailed in Belarus. I'm not afraid of being fired or kicked off of the national team. I'm concerned about my safety. And I think that at the moment, it is not safe for me in Belarus. I didn't do anything, but they deprived me of the right to participate in the 200-meter race and wanted to send me home. Now, Allison, Belarusian athletes who have criticized the government have faced reprisal. They've been detained. They've been excluded from the national team. President Alexander Lukashenko has initiated a brutal crackdown on protesters, dissidents, on journalists after refusing to snap down last year. Some Belarusian athletes participated in those protests and several of them have been jailed. And Alison Alexander Lukashenko himself was actually in charge of the Belarus National Olympic Committee for decades. 
before his son Victor took over. Now, Victor is not recognized by the IOC, and Lukashenko and his son are barred from attending the Tokyo Games. Selena, another headline out of the Olympics. Um, after previously withdrawing from the all-around competition and three-event finals, Simone Biles will now compete in Tuesday's balance beam final at the Olympic Games. Walk us through what changed here. Yeah, Allison, Simone Biles is making a return on balance beam on Tuesday. As you say, after withdrawing from several events, this is going to be her last chance to take home a gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics after saying that she was stepping back because of mental health concerns. Now, on Friday on Instagram, she said that she was still dealing with this mental block called the twisties. She said she literally couldn't tell up from down and that it was terrifying not to have her mind and body in sync when she was doing these skills. She even showed videos of herself doing skills and dismounting and, and struggling there. But she is set to be there on Tuesday on balance beam. Now, I was actually at the gymnastics finals on Sunday and I saw Simone Biles in the stands. She was cheering on her teammates, standing, clapping, smiling, calling out their names. And now she will actually get to compete as well on Tuesday. Allison. Yeah, I was watching too. Love the uneven bars. It's Selena Wang, thanks so much for your reporting. And Selena is going to be back with us later in the show to talk about Japan's gold rush in the games. Jack Dorsey's payments company Square is buying Afterpay, an Australian buy now, pay later firm, in a $29 billion deal. It's Square's biggest purchase and helps build out its global payments network. Claire Sebastian joins me live now. So this is an interesting trend that has really grown over the pandemic, the buy now, pay later, but it's really taking off among young people. Yeah, I was in buy now, pay later, a, a major acceleration that we've seen over the course of the last 18 months, driven partly by uh, the lockdowns, partly by the, the rise in e-commerce. This allows people to sort of borrow money, but but it's automated uh, sort of installments, it's essentially installment lending. And Afterpay is one of the leaders in this space. This is an Australian fintech company. Uh, this acquisition by Square for $29 billion in an all-stock deal really does, to some extent, put this trend on the map. Square has seen exponential growth of its own accord during the pandemic. The stock up some 550% since its lows of March 2020. It just reported earnings where it saw a 91% increase in profits. So it's clearly trying to continue that growth. It has overseas ambitions, which Afterpay will help it with. So, so clearly there are some synergies here. It hopes to integrate Afterpay with not only its very popular cash app, the competitor to Venmo, but also with its seller ecosystem as well to help sellers reach more merchants. So extremely interesting deal. Jack Dorsey uh, saying that this, this, you know, we built our built business, he says, uh, the finance, to make the financial system more fair, accessible and exclusive and inclusive rather. And Afterpay has built a trusted brand aligned with those principles. In terms of the stock reaction today, Afterpay closed, Alison, almost 19% higher uh, in Australia. Square uh, shares in the pre-market down just about 2% lower. So not too much lower given the cost of this deal. Claire, what about critics who say that this business model uh, that so far is just loosely regulated, you know, it doesn't require credit checks to be run on new accounts, that this kind of this kind of space is really rife for fraud? 
Yeah, I think there is a significant concern, Alison, that this is a space that's growing much faster than it can be regulated. There are, there are moves to try and regulate it in the UK. Uh, there was a, an article by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau here in the US that, that notes that they don't, uh, offer, they don't often conduct very rigorous credit checks before lending, so it can mean that vulnerable people take on debt. Additionally, there aren't the same sort of dispute protections that you have with credit cards uh, that, 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 that help consumers if, if a product that they buy is a scam or, or faulty uh, in some way, and they don't, and they don't charge interest on these loans, these instalment loans, but they do charge late payment fees. So there are concerns around that. There was a survey by Credit Karma in the U.S. that found that 40% of people have actually used a buy now pay later service at least once. Of those, 38% ended up with a, with a late payment, and of those, about three quarters found that that impacted their credit score. So this is something that consumers should definitely be careful of. But after pay for its uh, case, they say that they they lock your account if you have a late payment. They cap late payments at about 25% of the original purchase. So they are trying to, to, to sort of go against that, that concern that they do uh, lead to consumers taking on more debt. And they, they talk about sort of financial wellness uh, in the statement today with Square. Yeah, consumer beware with this one. I mean, I can see, you know, young shoppers, unsuspecting who you know, go from one store to another to another. Before you know it, four installment payments become like 12 after shopping at, mm-hmm. you know, three different places. But that's for another discussion another day. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. To the Middle East now and rising maritime tensions after an attack on a tanker that killed two people. The U.S., U.K. and Israel are all blaming Iran, which denies any involvement. Oil prices not making any big moves, though. Nick Robertson, is on the story for us. Nick, great to see you. What's the latest? Yeah, great to see you too, Alison. Look, I think I think part of the reason that we're not seeing ahead on the oil markets at the moment is this what this didn't a cause an explosion. It did cause two deaths. It's understood that the uh, product tanker was empty at the time. And also, this is not the first incident of this type in recent months. The British Foreign Office point out this is the there have been three previous such attacks uh, over the past uh, few months since February. So I think that's perhaps why uh, markets are not being spooked. But it's certainly having diplomatic repercussions, both here in London and in Romania as well. Iranian ambassadors to the UK and to Romania have both been called in. Um, James Cleverly, the British uh, minister in charge of the Middle East, uh, told the Iranian ambassador here very clearly that international shipping should be able to continue without this sort of uh, interference and has told Iran that, that it must stop this kind of behavior. We've heard as well from Naftali Bennett, the, the, uh, the prime minister in Israel, saying that Israel knows how to um, strike back, if you will, at Iran. The denials that are coming from Iran at the, uh, at the moment are very strong. They're very clear. They're saying uh, they weren't responsible for this. But I think also we're hearing a message from uh, the supreme leader in Iran, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, saying that the West cannot be trusted in negotiations. We're entering a new sort of diplomatic period. Um, these challenging uh, talks, uh, nuclear deal talks between Iran uh, and and the United States, not face to face. They're stalling at the moment. That's part of the environment. A new Iranian uh, president, harder line, due to be sworn in later this week. All of this, it seems to be contributing to these heightened tensions. What long-term ramifications do you see coming of this? 
I think we're going to see, uh, you know, uh, the, the statements clearly warning Iran against this kind of action. I think uh, there's going to be a lot of attention later this week when the new Iranian president, Ibrahim uh, Raisi, is signed in on uh, on Thursday. He takes over uh, as, as president in, uh, in Iran. Um, and what he says then, what's the nuance in what he says? Uh, can it be interpreted as throttling back even the very limited engagement with the United States? States over those over those nuclear deal talks, um, or, or is there the, the potential here for other tit for tat type incidents? That's the kind of environment we're in at the moment. So that that cannot be ruled out at all. But at the moment, the focus is on diplomatic uh, efforts to call out what is happening, all sides to say their position, and to try to find a way ahead. And what we've heard from the State Department, they're saying um, there will be a response forthcoming. But again, I think we can expect this to be diplomatic at the moment. All right. International Diplomatic Editor Nick Robertson, thanks for all that great context. China's capital is tightening its COVID restrictions. A cluster of cases that emerged two weeks ago has now spread to 11 provinces and infected more than 300 people. CNN's Stephen Jang reports. China's latest number of new locally transmitted cases still pales in comparison to what we are seeing in many parts of the world, including in the United States. But in this country, they hadn't seen this level of infection for months. That's why the central leadership has sent a vice premier to Nanjing to supervise the local response to this outbreak. And that's the same senior official they dispatched to Wuhan during the peak of that city's outbreak in the beginning of the global pandemic. That's how seriously concerned the leadership feels about the spread of this new cluster, which really shows no sign of abating, uh, spreading across the country, impacting not only uh, airport staff, but also airline crews, school children, tourists, as well as doctors and nurses. That's why increasingly we're seeing local authorities reimpose draconian measures we hadn't seen for a long time. And that means millions of Chinese people are now again being confined to their homes with the government designating more than 100 so-called high or medium risk areas. And all of this is happening in the middle of the peak summer travel, uh, travel season, and that hasn't helped things. So we are seeing a growing number of tourist attractions as well as airports being shut with local officials, including those here in Beijing, advising residents not to leave town. And here in the Chinese capital, they have also greatly tightened entry requirements, basically banning anyone from the uh, high or medium risk areas from entering the city by uh, suspending transportation links to those regions. And as of now, there is little indication the central leadership here is going to change their current approach, which is zero tolerance towards locally transmitted cases. So do expect to see more lockdowns and a sharp decline in domestic travel here in China. Stephen Jiang, CNN, Beijing. These are the stories making headlines around the world. Turkish officials say more than 100 wildfires have started across the country since Wednesday. Farmers can only watch as land and livestock are destroyed and homes are burned to the ground. In one village, though, residents are doing all they can to fight the catastrophe, as Arwa Damon reports. Gulay Kacar can barely breathe barely shout the words. Her father's land is burning. Let it burn. We're going to burn too, her relative responds. She's frantic. Where to go, what to do, what can they save? For days, the flames have been leaping closer and closer to this tiny village on Turkey's southern Mediterranean coast. 
It's as if they're fighting a monster that keeps coming to life each time they dare to hope it's dead. Everything is going to burn, Muzayin Kacha tells us mournfully. Our land, our animals, our house. What else do we have anyway? Despite this being close to popular seaside tourist destinations, these villagers don't have much. And what they have, they cherish, they take pride in. A small band of men from here and other areas trudges through the easily flammable fields. They take control of the firefighter's hose. It's so hot out, it feels like the water evaporates almost as quickly as it is sprayed. Trees are felled to stop the flames from growing and sparks flying into other areas. They are fighting a beast they may not be able to beat. The last of the children are sent away. How should I feel? We haven't slept for three days, this woman starts to tell us. They're so understandable. I mean, so angry that they're actually finding our questions of how they're feeling, what they're thinking to be absolutely ridiculous, and I get it. For what can one even think, even say, when they are watching everything they own in life about to go up in flames. Arwa Damon Siena, Manavgat, Turkey. COVID lockdown restrictions in the Australian state of Queensland are being extended another week. The stay-at-home order was meant to run through Monday, but officials now say the initial lockdown was insufficient. Eastern states of Australia are seeing a growing number of cases of the Delta variant. Still to come on First Move, emotional reunions. The UK allows quarantine-free travel from Europe and the US for the first time since the pandemic began. We'll take a look at what it means for the economy. And a record performance of MoneyGram's online offerings drives a 20% revenue surge. I'll speak with the CEO. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, and the curtain is about to go up on a new month of trading on Wall Street. Futures are pointing to early session gains after the sixth straight monthly rise for the S&P 500. U.S. markets begin the day near records as investors await another busy week of corporate earnings. The big data point of the week comes Friday when we'll be getting the U.S. jobs report for July. A strong number could move the Fed and its policymakers one step closer to to, uh, cutting some stimulus. The big wild card here, of course, remains rising COVID infections and their effect on the global economy. Alicia Levine joins me now. She is the head of equities and capital markets advisory at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Great to see you. Good morning and happy Monday. Happy Monday. And it is the first trading day of the month. And as you know, August can really wind up being one of these wild, volatile months. And and this particular August that we're in, it has a lot of headlines, including the Delta variant and the unknown impact of it on the economy. At the moment, we see investors kind of shrugging it off, but I'm feeling like there are big risks. What do you think? So, yeah, look, it's great to see you for the new month. And August traditionally has been a very choppy month. And I'd say the conversation right now across Wall Street 
is to expect a, a lackluster month. So mo broad movements up and down with no clear direction, as the risks you talked about are very real. So it's not just Delta, but really how that affects the labor market and whether or not the labor market can really retain some of its 2019 strength going into the end of the year. That's the big risk out there, whether we still have people who are on the sidelines and not re-entering the labor force because of health risks or simply because they're in the wrong part of the country as the population has moved to other places, labor may not be in the right place. So there's some structural issues out there that we do think will be reflected in markets this month. The Fed is also buzzing in the background of investor sentiment. And last week, Jerome Powell, he, you know, he stuck to his script um, that inflation is transitory. Do you think that the Fed is making a mistake at this point by not raise, raising rates yet? Is, is the Fed behind the curve? So, so, Allison, this is really a great question, because, as you know, for the most part, the market has completely priced out long-term inflation. It is pricing in a shorter-term inflation bump, and then longer-term inflation moves lower. And the market pricing is thus. However, we're hearing from virtually every company in reporting season, and even up and down Main Street, that priced inputs are higher, they're real, and they're starting to affect businesses. And very slowly, we're starting to hear that consumers are starting to be a little bit more cautious because of price increases. So I think the risk here is that inflation as a transitory issue is not in the, you know, higher in for months, but maybe for quarters. And perhaps the definition of transitory has changed. And that is the risk. I don't think the Fed should move yet because there is a lot of there's a lot of damage that has been done to the labor force here. So I think that's okay. But I think there may be a collision at some point as prices continue to be higher and not so transitory and the Fed and the market are really priced for something much more benign. I think we don't know yet. So much of the price increases are, in fact, related to the friction and reopening. But some aren't, such as labor prices, wage increases and housing. Okay, so with this possible collision, do you think that, you know, we're going to get a pullback in this market or does, you know, an accommodative Fed basically, you know, guarantee that by the dip is any reaction, is the reaction to any pullback? So look, so so the 10-year yield has moved down quite dramatically in part because of these kinds of issues and worries about growth concerns. And so I don't think it's this month. I, I think that that's a longer term conversation about whether or not the market's properly priced in inflation risk here. So for today, it seems reasonable, but I'd be on guard for any movement upward because the data so far is not quite cooperating. Like in the end, if the Fed thought transitory meant three months, it's clear it's going to be much longer than that. I'm curious what your takeaway is so far with uh, second quarter earnings. We're, you know, this week's going to be a big week for earnings. Um, and so what's your takeaway so far, especially for not just for the earnings season, but for uh, the guidance going forward? So, it, you know, it's been spe a spectacular earnings seasons. It looks like for second quarter, earnings will be up about 82 or 83 percent year over year. And that's because the revenue lines have come in so strong. And, and, and you know, large company America really did an extraordinary job in right-sizing their businesses and wringing out costs during the trauma of last year. And we're reaping the rewards this year in terms of earnings. We see the value in cyclical 
uh, areas, bringing in triple-digit earnings growth for this quarter and probably next quarter as well. Um, I'm looking at 2022. Those earnings really have not moved higher at all. Uh, even as 2021 had closer to $200 a share. So we really want to look at 2022 and what forward guidance is. And that's really the big question here. I think there's no question second quarter was going to be terrific. We need companies to tell us what does the, the Delta variant do for some of those consumer and travel companies? And what does it look like going forward when we have a steady state of how people work and how people live and how people shop? What does that look like in terms of growth rates? And I think we, we don't know yet. We don't know, but I'd say the takeaway is so far, most companies have been able to pass through costs, not all, but most. And second, that that the companies have been very, very nimble in right-sizing their businesses. And so for those reasons, I'm pretty optimistic about guidance going forward. Okay, thanks so much, Alicia Levine, the head of equities and capital markets advisory at BNY Mellon Wealth Management. So great to see you. And the market open is next. I'll see you after the break. And you're taking a live look at the opening bell on Wall Street, and you aren't seeing wrong. That is a card cut, a cardboard cutout of a person. Um, they're really happy there that that's GXO Logistics ringing the opening bell. And welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the month. And we've got green arrows across the board with the U.S. majors once again near record highs. Stocks getting a boost from news that a large U.S. infrastructure bill is making progress in the Senate. The major averages all saw modest gains last month. All are up by double digits so far this year. Investors, meantime, are sure to keep a close eye on shares of Robinhood after its less-than-stellar market debut last week. Shares of the popular trading app are seeing gains early in the session, uh, but they still are below their IPO price of $38 a share. Fully vaccinated travelers from the U.S. and the EU can now visit the U.K. without quarantining. You're looking at families and friends who have been reunited at Heathrow. We're now waiting to hear if the U.K. will expand that to visitors from other countries. Salma Abdelaziz is in London, and it's those scenes that make you feel, ah, you know, maybe things are getting better. But you know what? Then we hear about the Delta variant um, getting so many people sick. Uh, I, I understand that these travelers will be able to avoid quarantine, but there's also the reality that travelers will still have to take a PCR test on the second day after they arrive, right? Absolutely, Allison. There's always a few caveats, but seeing those lovely images, I'm an American in London, just imagining being able to hug my family again. It's absolutely an exciting day to see these restrictions ease, but there are, as you said, a few rules around them. So starting at 4 a.m. today, British Standard Time, uh, travelers coming in from the EU or the U.S. are allowed to come if they are fully vaccinated. That means if you're coming from the EU, you have to show your green pass. If you're coming from the United States, you have to show that vaccine card to prove that you are fully vaccinated. You're also going to have to show a negative PCR test before departure from wherever you're departing from at that airport to your airline. And then you're going to have to take yet another coronavirus test two days after arrival. 
There's one major exception here, Alison, that's France. Any travelers coming from France will still have to follow quarantine rules. They're still under something called the Amber Plus list. So separate rules there, even though they are, of course, inside the EU. And as you said, yes, this comes at a time when we're seeing the rising Delta variant. We have seen a slowing down in cases, but the argument here for the authorities is twofold. First, these travelers are fully vaccinated. They have that layer of protection. They are also showing negative tests before arrival. There is a reasonable measure of safety with them arriving here in the UK. And as you know, of course, this country is eager to reopen its travel industry, its business industry, its restaurants. It wants to see tourists come back. So it really drives uh, that benefit. The second one is, of course, there needs to be some sort of benefits for those who are vaccinated. That's what the authorities are really pointing here, to encourage people to get vaccinated vaccinated, you have to see that there is some difference. And for them, that means being able to allow travelers to come back here, uh, meet family, meet friends, visit. That is a a really big step forward. But so far, of course, we don't see any reciprocity from the United States. This is only a one-way street. And so far, of course, it's also for the EU and the United States. That means there's very limited vaccines. And we are talking about the vaccine privileged here, the world at large. My mother, for example, who's in Egypt, that is a much more difficult hurdle for authorities. And we're still waiting to see how we begin to recognize those who are vaccinated in other countries and how we begin to tackle those who are not vaccinated at all, Alison. Yeah, you talk about how hard it is to get those vaccines. Now there are actually plans in place to deliver a booster shot beginning in September. That's absolutely right. And um, it's sort of difficult to begin to imagine when we're still just trying to get everyone fully vaccinated to think about yet another shot, a third shot, second shot for some people if you had the Johnson and Johnson. But the authorities have been working on this for months because what they are concerned about here is two things. First, variants. That is the concern. The Delta variant is the one we're dealing with right now, but there could potentially be more variants in the future. I'm going to point you to a key paper that was published by a group of uh, scientific advisors that advise the government here, a government back group. They uh, published this paper. It's not peer-reviewed. It is not theoretical, but it goes through the scenarios in which the virus is able to evade our current vaccines. And the paper says that is very likely to happen. And the eradication of the virus, that is unlikely to happen. Essentially, the bottom line here is these scientists are saying, this is a virus we're going to live with for some time. It is a virus that's going to mutate and change. And it is a virus that is very likely going to mutate and change into a form that could evade our current vaccines. That means in the long term, we're looking at more shots, more booster treatments, and more restrictions potentially to try to avoid uh, these variants from taking hold in our already vaccinated population, Allison. Okay, Selma Abdelaziz, thanks so much for all of that reporting. The changing of the rules on travel comes after the UK lifted most restrictions on movement last month. Despite that, there are still significant disruptions to the economy, including labor shortages driven by continuing COVID-19 transmissions and something called a pandemic, where workers are being asked to self-isolate after contact with anyone infected. Joining me is Nick Allen. He's the CEO of the British Meat Processors Association. Great to meet you. Good to be here. Thank you. And so supply chain shortages are uh, are a big problem for meat processors. Um, you know, you look at the, the pandemic right now, it's being felt globally, but especially in the UK. Talk us through what's happening with Britain's food supply chain in the midst of the pandemic. 
Yeah, it, it, it's been a real struggle right the way through the pandemic. Uh, the um, the food sector has always been short of labour, uh, partly because we had so relied so many sort of non UK sort of uh, workers to uh, keep the, the industry running, uh, and so we actually had a problem before COVID came along. Uh, so that you know, cutting our ties with Europe uh, sort of meant that so we'd lost access to quite a few of those workers, and then so sort of COVID uh, in itself uh, just you know created some further problems. We lost some workers. Sort of shielding, uh, more of these uh, work, non-UK workers went home and didn't come back again. Uh, so the food, uh, whole food sector was sort of struggling, and particularly on the haulage side, we've been struggling to sort of move move goods around. And then, as you mentioned in your app, we had this uh, in your intro. We had this uh, app um, that started to uh, you know re- really sort of go wild, sort of pinging everyone and sort of telling them to you know they'd been in contact with someone and they had to stay at home for ten days and self-isolate. And that really put the pressure on on as a real straw that broke the camel's back and uh you know we've been struggling to keep the food supply chain running we're just, just about managing but uh you know there's a there's a few gaps appearing on the shelves now and a few a few gaps appearing in the shops so with this um you know this app that's making so many in the industry self-isolate what tough choices could meat processing companies be forced to make by having that labor shortage that impacts the supply of meat talk with me more in detail yeah. Yeah, you're in a real dilemma, particularly as a meat processor, because you're you're taking an animals off the farm and keeping that uh, that that whole supply chain running. And really, in truth, the the best way to keep the supply chains running is is to cut down on uh, the cuts of meat that actually need a bit more butchery and a bit more refinement. Uh, so that you can actually get them through the plant and get the sort of the volume through the plant and keep everything running. And that, of course, keeps the animals coming off the farm and keeps everything sort of, you know, relatively happy. It, the downside of that is that those are the uh, cuts of meat that actually you make uh, the, the least amount of money on. You actually make the profit from adding value. So uh, it, it, it's a bit of a dilemma for some meat processors as to whether they do, do they keep the volume running or do they sort of concentrate on trying to keep their the, the profitability of the business going. And you you talked about the meat products that would be impacted. I mean, how dire is this? Uh, for, you know, from the consumer sp- standpoint, what meats are you talking about that that could be impacted the most, where the shortages could really happen? At the moment, it's the, it's the more refined cuts that need a bit more sort of butchery. So it's the more refined chops and steaks and things like that. that so people tend to sort of pay at the premium, at the premium end. Uh, this, I wouldn't want to give anyone an impression that this, this is actually getting so sort of dire, but it, it is, it seems to be growing at the moment. You know, we had a brief lull in, in uh, sort of um, cases, but now it seemed to pick up at the end of um, last week. And also uh, the, this, the, the, um, the, the app produced a record number of pings last week, you know, which uh, uh, meant that yet more people were having to stay at home. So the government's just introduced this new scheme that um, uh, we, we can all, all sort of hopefully sort of sign up to whereby we can sort of test people and not have them stay at home. But it's early days yet. It's only introduced uh, last week and it's, it's not hardly up and running yet. What else do you want the government to do to help the industry? Well, we've been asking them for some time to <clears throat> to um, sort of allow us to have sort of butchers, and the term butchers actually covers quite a range of workers, uh, added to what they call the shortage occupation list, i.e. that's that means we can bring some people in from um, uh, from abroad because that, uh, uh, that, that, that would help. Uh, and sort of, you know, we've been asking them for some time and, and that they keep declining that, uh, that, that sort of answer due. Um, in, in the short term, I think that this scheme that they've introduced is very sort 
sort of clunky um, and, and sort of quite uh, burdensome to, and, and it could really do, be, do with being sort of organised in a much better way, in a much more efficient way uh, to keep it happening. And uh, we sort of, sort of we, when we get through to August the 16th, uh, we'll be able to, people that have been vaccinated twice won't have to do this self-isolation. They'll just have to have, a, ha, have one test to check they're clear. We've been saying to government, look, if we're running into problems here, sort of bring things forward a bit. Um, also got problems on the haulage side, you know, so it's one thing when our, our meat plants manage to produce product, but then if they can't actually get it uh, to where it needs to go, that's a sort of challenge. So, uh, you know, we've been asking them to, um, they have actually have extended the, sort of, uh, the number of hours a driver can um, sort of drive during the day to help with that. Um, but also we've got a lot of people on furlough still. Um, that probably in truth haven't got jobs to come back to um, so we've been asking them to have a look at the furlough scheme and see you know, can we get them back into um, in, into work really because we're desperate for labour and there's all these people sat at home doing nothing. All right, Nick Allen, thanks so much for giving us a, a window into what's going on into uh, the, the meat processing industry where you are. Uh, Nick Allen, the CEO of the British Meat Processors Association, thanks so much. Coming up on First Move, one of the largest money transfer companies seeing its revenue surge, the CEO of MoneyGram joins us next. MoneyGram, one of the leading money transfer companies, reports its revenue jumped nearly 20 percent in the second quarter, driven by a record number of online customers and transactions. It says cross-border money transfer volume increased over 40 percent during the period. Joining me now is Alex Holmes. He's the chairman and CEO of MoneyGram International. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me this morning. So some solid earnings. What do you attribute these jumps to? Uh, walk us through what's working at MoneyGram and the challenges ahead. Yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, quite a remarkable 18 months uh, for a variety of different reasons. And MoneyGram has been um, seeing the benefit of our digital acceleration and transformation that we've put uh, in place really over the last several years as we moved from a really uh, transaction-centric to a very customer-centric focused organization. And the benefits of that uh, digital migration have uh, really paid back for us during the, the pandemic and for all of our customers and consumers around the world as we've seen just a huge jump in the number of transactions initiated and uh, received uh, digitally around the world. Uh, we had uh, about 33% of our business now uh, is completely digitized, which is uh, up from about 10% just you know three or four years ago. So it's been uh, quite a remarkable uh, increase. And we've also seen, I think, contrast to the concerns uh, put forward originally by the World Bank and others that uh, remittances would slow down. Uh, as an industry, we've actually seen remittances increase uh, and continue to surge uh, throughout the pandemic, despite the challenges associated with uh, lockdowns and employment and many of the other factors that are certainly influencing lives uh, on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I, exactly. So MoneyGram is actually in talks, I know, with Stellar Development Foundation about a possible acquisition. Um, what could you tell us about how all of that's going? Well, you know, I'm not going to comment specifically uh, on uh, individual rumors, but uh, given the incredible growth the company has seen uh, really over the past year and sort of the transformation that we've been through, plus uh, our leading uh, fintech applications that we've put out, it's not surprising that through our conversations uh, taking place and rumors uh, hitting the news about uh, 
potential uh, takeover uh, of the company or mergers or investments. Uh, as you know, we had a longstanding relationship with Ripple for a number of years. I think MoneyGram has been seen uh, over the past couple of years as leading innovation, uh, particularly in the money transfer space around blockchain uh, and our uh, efforts to participate in various different ways uh, <clears throat> in cryptocurrencies uh, and really begin to look at new applications for uh, sending and receiving money. Uh, and as part of that, you know, it's not surprising that someone uh, like Stellar, who's doing as much work as they are in the area, uh, you know, have popped up on the radar, uh, you know, as a potential partner. Yeah. And Jed McCallum, he founded Stellar and co-founded Ripple as well, where, where you all, um, you know, you severed your agreement with Ripple. But then with, with right. Jed founding Stellar, now Stellar looks like it could be courting your company. Some may say it's a little ironic, uh, this possible Stellar takeover of uh, MoneyGram right now. Yeah, I, I would say, uh, you know, generally speaking, that, um, you know, the, the entire world of blockchain and crypto is is very new. Uh, I would argue that there are a, a number of potential opportunities to uh, do things differently uh, when it comes to cross-border money movement, not just in the money transfer space, but also in the payment space as well. And I think a lot of uh, individual organizations out there, you know, including Stellar, including Ripple and many others are looking at uh, ways in which to uh, make improvements. Uh, I would argue that most of that uh, technology, uh, as advanced as it is, is pretty far afield at this point from really uh, benefiting uh, the traditional money transfer space uh, in a variety of ways. I think crypto is still a little bit far afield from most mainstream consumers in any market around the world. Uh, the way that crypto moves through exchanges uh, has a lot of limitations, and there's some extraneous costs still associated with uh, trying to uh, move crypto in and out of fiat currencies. And we believe at MoneyGram that there's a role for us to play uh, in that bridge and, and being able to really tie fiat back to crypto uh, and enable it to actually uh, get to the hands uh, of the many people around the world that would probably more benefit from it than uh, where it sits today, which is still, you know, in, in many respects, um, you know, sitting in uh, the hands of uh, more, I would guess, affluent uh, holders of the currencies mm -hmm. and really getting down into mainstream uh, parts of the world. You know, today's announcement of Square taking over Afterpay. Any interest from MoneyGram in expanding into the installment payments space? <laughs> yeah, well, I think anything related to consumer credit uh, always comes with a with an interesting uh, twist to it. And, you know, I think there are times where when those uh, pay back and others when it can be difficult. I would say, broadly speaking, uh, that today when you're going consumer direct, when you have online properties and you're able to uh, reach consumers in new ways, uh, there's always interest in expanding uh, product sets and offering um, ancillary services. I think uh, the ability to uh, look at subscription type services, um, afterpay type services, small microloans, uh, payments associated with uh, money movement can all be beneficial to uh, both the upstream and downstream consumers um, within our space. Most people uh, that are sending money home uh, are doing that out of need and necessity for those that are receiving the funds. And so they feel a lot of responsibility and obligation there. And so I certainly think anything that would enable uh, those funds to, uh, to get there faster, more real time, uh, and also ensure that they get there even when, uh, when mm -hmm. there's times of uh, struggle, I suppose, on the send side for a sender uh, would be beneficial. And so I think uh, those types of applications, all the changes in the fintech space right now are super exciting, I think, really helping to push right. uh, more progressive uh, opportunity mm -hmm. for consumers around the world.
Okay, Alex Holmes, CEO of MoneyGram International. Great talking with you. And we'll be right back. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. Japan's athletes have already won 17 gold medals at the Olympics. Selena Wang spoke to swimming sensation Yui Ohashi about her country's success. I came this far dreaming of winning a gold medal. Swimmer Yui Ohashi has helped lead the host nation's gold rush. But I never thought for a moment that I could win a gold medal, even though I had imagined it. Ohashi didn't win just one gold medal, but two, making history as the first Japanese woman to accomplish this at a single Olympics. And that is just the start for Japan. It has already racked up 17 gold medals, more than it's ever won before, and medaled in debut Olympic events like skateboarding and surfing. These games have been very controversial in Japan, but now the public is getting inspired by the incredible performance of athletes like yourself. What do you think the legacy of these Olympics will be? Athletes also had to deal with the voices of opposition to the Olympics and the question of whether or not the Olympics should really be held. We, the athletes, went into the Olympics with a great deal of confusion, but I've received a lot of comments from people who said they were moved by athletes winning gold medals and other medals, seeing athletes trying so hard, so I'm very happy about that. As the public cheers on its nation's athletes like Ohashi... The intense opposition to the game seems to be softening. According to Olympic Broadcasting Services, more than 70 million people tuned into the Olympic opening ceremony in Japan, making it the most watched event in 10 years. Before the Olympics started, there were many issues, he told me. But once it started, I thought I should support it as a Japanese. There does have to be a separator between criticism of the Olympics and criticism of the athletes. I think Japan is always behind its athletes, 100% any sport, any discipline, any tournament. Uh, But these Olympics are still complicated. Complicated might be an understatement as COVID-19 continues to cast a shadow over these games. We don't feel like having a festival mood, she told me. I know there are people suffering from COVID while people are excited about the Olympics. Despite this, Japan still has the home country advantage. Even though there's no fans cheering for them, they still know that they're in their home country. And I think because of COVID and because the games were postponed for a year, I think there's almost an added sense of, like, do it for your country. That maybe there's even more of a push to say, hey, you know, we've been struggling and there's a lot of issues here in our country, but we're going to show the world that we can win gold medals. But taking the gloss off of Japan's Golden Week was the end of Naomi Osaka's Olympic journey. Osaka, the face of the Tokyo 2020 Games, who lit the cauldron during the opening ceremony, was eliminated in the third round. You know, I was really cheering for her since she's, you know, the best uh, athlete here in Japan. Still, these games have offered new heroes who hope the golden legacy of Tokyo 2020 will outweigh the costs of these pandemic Olympics. I really didn't realize the impact sport has on a country until this week. From the opening ceremony to just social media and just seeing how much a sport can bring together, not just the country, but the whole world. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. I'm Alison Kosick. Connect the World is next.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.